Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. again slava back at it this back, week back at it reading another short story how was your week it was good brother it was good it was a repeat of last week funny enough wrangling some cats chasing down content so i do digital strategy for my for my work and content strategy and so it was a lot of uh, a lot of chasing down of information and visuals but despite despite all the cat wrangling i was able to get content all the way into april that doesn't mean a lot, but you got more content than I got. Are you? You yeah. said you you relived last week. Are you trapped in Groundhog Day? And also, how am I part of this? Well, <laughs> good question. I'm trapped in something, man. It's just the past two weeks have been. Each day has been just. Well, here's the here's the thing. For my work, it's it's always projecting out a couple of months out. You're always thinking ahead. You're thirty thousand feet. And you're there most of the time. The last two weeks, I can't say I'm necessarily in the weeds, but it's been a little project here, a little project there, or a little step in project B here. Then you move to project D, and then somehow you find yourself looking for items for project F, all this stuff. And none of it, I can't say any of it was overwhelming, but again, repeat. Sounds like you're a French chef in a kitchen, just like slowly putting together... Oh, we we don't uh, put the little thing and out, and then we go over here and we make the dessert, and then we do this, yeah. and then we cook the the lamb in the oven, and we go. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, for sure. It's it's a a bit of a Michelin star kind of presentation. It. It's pretty funny. I'm I'm laughing. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I really. That's funny. If you're gonna compare my job to French chef, you know, like in Michelin star restaurants, you have to plate it right and. A little dollop of sauce here and the little parsley piece on the left and then the little, you know, whatever, the shrimp or the scallop in the middle with a little bit of a mushroom on the side. That's basically my job. Uh, I did a lot of plating. That's what it sounds like. Uh, the last two weeks. Yeah. But it was good. I can't complain. Like, it's, it's better than the weeks where, you know, you talked about your company's Super Bowl last week. It's better than when we're up against our Super Bowl which happens in November, then everybody's running around like a like a chicken with their head cut off. So I'll take this I'll take the this sort of week uh, all day long. I hope <laughs> the next two are the same. Have you ever been to a Michelin star restaurant? No, but I have been to a few tasty menus, and it's fun. I like it. Is there it's anything... expensive, but it's fun. Because it's just, we're quick side quest here because I've been thinking about food a lot because I'm Forcing myself to do a diet to lose some weight. Wow. Uh, Baba Booey. And Baba is there Bowie. something below a Michelin star? Or is it just like you got the star or you don't got the star? Because I thought it was like three stars. I think it's up to three stars. There's different star systems, I guess, that we can call it that. The Milky so there's Way, like a, Orion's Belt. Milky, Orion Belt. The best restaurants are in Orion's Belt, in my opinion. So that you got your one star, your two star, your I think you need like your five star restaurants. Those are your typical, you know, high end steakhouses or American fair restaurant or whatever they may be. You might have Indian fair restaurants that are five star. And in Chicago, I ate at a 
Indian joint, but it was it was top level Indian restaurant. So you have all kinds. And then when you get on the Michelin arena, and I don't know enough to speak with too much confidence, but this is what I understand of it. Once a chef reaches a certain level, he gets a Michelin star. And then he can get two or three Michelin stars. And those restaurants are world class. So while your five-star restaurant might only be known in Chicago, for example, and unless it's, unless news of it travels farther, people might come, a Michelin star restaurant is in the Michelin guide. So it's become, at that point, a world-class restaurant. Yeah, I just pulled up. And the, that's all I know. Just yeah, the restaurant guide here, and it says that the Michelin series one star indicates a very good restaurant. Great, very specific. Two stars yep. indicates a place worth a detour. Three stars means exceptional cuisine worth a special journey. Right. That's that makes it. sense. That's what those means. Well, yeah, but they're being elusive on purpose because it's all about the the allure of these restaurants, right? None of these restaurants are priced anywhere close to, you know, even think of the most expensive restaurant you ate at. These restaurants will be at least double that. And that's not a knock because you're paying for more. I'm going to sound, you know, elitist here and that, whatever. Sorry, not sorry. You're, well, when you go to these kind of restaurants, you are paying for the experience. You, you're having between five and sometimes 12 courses, sometimes more. And you're trying a new type of food prepared by a specialist. And there's a whole production to it. It's almost a theatrical. Right. It's an experience. So, so you're paying for an experience. Like, you know, if you can't afford it, well, that's not a knock on anybody. But if you can, it's a great thing to do. I think at least once in your life, I think somebody should try If you're a foodie, that is, you should try it. And I haven't been, like I said, I haven't been to a Michelin star restaurant for a tasting menu, but I've been to a couple of tasting menu restaurants. It's a really fun experience and you eat really, really good food. Interesting. All right. I could, yeah. we could literally talk about this the whole time because I'm just like scouring this Wikipedia page right now, looking over some things and I have more questions because I know that you do more ex exquisite cooking in your kitchen than I do. Last night I made a stew that was That's very right. mediocre. Yeah, I just threw a bunch of stuff in a hot pot or um, a, not a crock pot, a pressure cooker. What's the brand? Right. Whatever it's called. The pressure Cuisine cooker art. brand. And just some salt, some pepper. Just it. It's just very mediocre. It's just like steamed vegetables in a chicken broth, basically. Not a whole lot of seasoning. And I just, I think it's very mediocre. But it's healthy and there's not a whole lot in it. It's just vegetables, so... Mm -hmm. You want to know what I made yesterday? Just to one-up you. I made neck clams over spaghetti in a lemon sauce. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Yeah, wee oui, wee. Oui. It's actually an Italian dish. Coastal Italian dish. Neck clams over spaghetti. Well, my ignorance so. is showing, so that's cool. I mean, I'm sure French people cook clams too, but the one I made is an Italian recipe. Fair enough. More on food later. Let's dive in. Where are we going? Deep down to the We're deep ones. So in this episode, we read Dagon, which is a short story by H.P. Lovecraft, first published in The Vagrant, November 1919. That's a small magazine owned by his friend. The story is the last testament of a tortured and morphine-addicted man who retells an incident that occurred during his service as an officer in the First World War. After escaping a German ship, 
He drifts aimlessly in the Pacific Ocean and eventually finds himself stranded on a volcanic rock that he describes as a slimy expanse of hellish black mire. As he explores, he finds a canyon. Descending the slope, he sees a giant monolith covered in hieroglyphs. As the narrator looks at the monolith, a creature emerges from the water. He describes it. The thing slid into view, vast, polyphemus-like, and loathsome. It darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith. Possessed by madness, the mariner flees, waking up in a hospital. Continuously haunted by visions of the creature, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, he describes his fear of humanity's demise at the hand of the creature. Suddenly, he is interrupted by a noise at the door. The story ends with him shouting, God, that hand, the window, the window. And that, Jonathan, is Dagon. Seems so. What I found interesting about this, and it's something that I really appreciate about authors, is when they can write a single line that alludes to the narrative itself or moments in time. And if you're not paying attention, you just think, oh, okay. So we start off with this guy in this hospital. And then as he's recounting the tale of what he'd been through, it's just a quick, hey, we were on a ship. Hey, we got boarded. Hey, I got away. And then the story kind of begins, right? Right. I really appreciate authors who can give you kind of a fast forward of time, but still make sure that you're tracking. That's true. It takes a special kind of writer to be able to describe a lot in a few words. I remember during my master's studies, there's this one kid that was just a genius when it came to writing. And we wrote a history paper that was on, I think, Jewish history, but it was like a specific slice of time. And to give context to his to his paper, he had to reference previous histories. And in four sentences, I still don't know how he did it. In four sentences, he he set it up. So if you knew your, if you were paying attention in class, or if you're read in history. You knew what he was talking about. He didn't have to explain or footnote anything, but he just had a knack for writing, saying a lot without writing a lot. And I think this is that's what you're getting with H.P. Lovecraft here, where he says a lot, and it's there's a lot of deep allusions, deep meaning, but it's a short story. It takes 18 minutes to read, but there's so much in this uh, story. Yeah, it's super interesting. Another piece that I really enjoyed about Lovecraft himself, but also seems different today with how people write compared to what it was back then, is first person. I mm. I don't read a lot of first person these days because that's not what people are writing. And even the first person that you do write tends to be more in the person's mind rather than them telling you a story like this was, which is different. Where you believe right. the narrator, you believe everything that they tell you, and then you go off of that information and sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong but it's the the layering that i appreciate is that oftentimes these main characters are going insane and they're so starkly sharp with their descriptions and then somehow they just start folding into madness as you're reading it yeah first person narratives that i read when i was a kid and that included poe and some others are starkly different than anything I read now as an adult. 
even in recent memory. And I don't know, I think writing has changed, culture has changed, all that stuff. But it's nice to be able to go back to authors like this and Yeah, the writing style is super different. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I was going to say, dare I say, a little bit nostalgic. That's true, too, right? It's it's old yeah. enough that you can tell that it's been written in a different age and a different time, but it's yeah. present or modern enough that you still comprehend it. It's not like stepping back into read Shakespeare and you go, well, what do these words mean? Speaking of words, did you catch some of the interesting words that are even are in this story? One is uh, where he describes the creature coming out of the water. And he calls it polyphemus-like. Do you know where that's from? You know, you know what polyphemus is referring to? Because uh, I'll tell you if you don't. I don't recall. Poly means many. Femus yeah. means... Don't tell me. Many-limbed one? Probably. Although the, the illusion I want to point out is... Polyphemus is from Greek mythology. That's the name of a famous cyclops oh. that was blind, blinded by Odysseus and, and Homer's um, Iliad. Iliad, yeah. I remember the monster asking what his name is, and he tells him something that translates in English as to nothing. So after the cyclops is blinded, he's running around screaming, nothing has hurt me or nothing has attacked me. And so the other Cyclops are like, ah, I guess like the gods are messing with him. So just a, a little side quest into. So I I guess what I'm trying to forget, aside, it's not really a side quest. What's interesting is so this creature that comes out of uh, the water that our narrator sees apparently is uh, one-eyed. Is that what he means? Polyphemus no, because he says poly, polyphemus-like. And then I remember he described the eyes. Uh, I can find it, but keep making your point he, he didn't have just one eye well that's my point yeah yeah just a few lines want... before it says grotesque beyond imagination of a poe or bull war they were damnably human in general outline despite we uh b- despite webbed hands and feet shockingly wide and flabby lips glassy bulging eyes and other features less pleasant to recall curiously enough they seem to have been chiseled badly out of a proportion of blah 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 so yeah, but multiple that re- eyes. That's is- why he's polyphemus like, because it's not that he has one eye; it's that he, I think it was his his height and stature, because in that same sentence where it says polyphemus like and loathsome, he looks at he uses the descriptions of monolith and monster and gigantic and scaly arms, or gigantic scaly arms. So. I, I would right. say that well, it's about his size, probably. Okay. I read it as, I read the, the things that you just described. I read that as the creatures that are sculpted into the monolith. And then this guy, as he's looking at those creatures that are sculpted into the monolith that are webbed and shockingly wide, flabby lips, bulging eyes, all that stuff, this thing comes out. So either way, I thought that was interesting. That Yeah, well, and he writer... finishes that, that area. He says, I think I went mad then, which if we're trusting the narrator... That has to be the transition point of madness, if you will. But a little later, he yeah. identifies the creature as most likely the ancient Philistine god Dagon, fish god. Going back to our point where we started with, with writers like H.P. Lovecraft, 
they're they're different not only because of their prose and their ability to maybe say a lot with a little, but to read their stuff, you kind of have to know some of the stuff on the on the periphery, right? Or even you know, I don't think Greek mythology is the per- peripheral thing, but I think you understand what I'm getting at. Yeah, I th- well, so this, and we've touched on this previously, is there's almost a zeitgeist of knowledge that happens when you read because we and we've spoken about the the pabadabadas what are they called i want to say piaget but that's not right pastiches pastiches thank you we've spoken about the pastiches where authors are giving an homage or they're giving some some sort of tip of the hat to other writers lovecraft is doing the same thing here when he mentions polythemus or polyphemus ph Blah, 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 blah. Because you have to have read the Iliad, just like you're saying. So, so as you read more, you step into this, I guess I'd call it ancient library that is people who write and people who read, where yeah. you can reference something if it's relevant and use it almost as an adjective like he does here to address whatever that character is looking at. Do you, yeah. uh, quick side quest. Tell us what a zeitgeist is. All right. Well, in layman's term, and that's, that's the way I know for. it, is like everything that's that's around us, like the, the marketplace of whether it's ideas, uh, knowledge, it's in the, the general sphere of human experience. And what do we say in the current zeitgeist, out there in the zeitgeist, it's right now in the last, you know, I, I'm going to say this, the experts might disagree, but in the last like decade, what is going on in our society and our culture? That's the zeitgeist. What's going on in the current zeitgeist, as they say? Like we're out there in the zeitgeist. That's the way I defining a spirit or mood of a particular period of history, as shown by the ideas and beliefs of that time. Less rambling than I what I just said, but yes, there we go. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So anyway, learning new words. You're welcome. The dictionary so, podcast. What? Is it the Dictionary Podcast? Are you trying to... Stay tuned next week where we read Dictionary to you. That's it. That's the podcast. Can you use it in Do a we start sentence? with the A's? Uh, we'll start in the B's. All okay. right. So I like the contrast of characters that Lovecraft writes, where he he takes a sane person and their demise is always slow and it always comes through a story of them recounting what happened you not always but primarily comes through that that channel sometimes you are there with them in the moment i think it was rats in the walls where the guy is with a friend in like the cellar or whatever and he keeps thinking he hears rats in the walls and you watch the madness occur in real time if you will rather than the retelling of a story and for me it's the setup of the feeling this is going to sound awkward but the way lovecraft sets up like what you feel as you read the story so the slow demise of a man's mind in in the short stories you referenced it's this slow build-up to something horrible about to happen there's something the demise of a a character physical or or mental so i we share that appreciation of lovecraft yeah so i want to shift over to dagon himself because you had told me that you had done quite a bit of research now dagon is a is a 
God mentioned in the Bible as well that the Philistines worshipped when they were by the sea. And there's this, the brief retelling of this moment in scripture is that Dagon is in the temple and the Philistines just took the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it into the temple with Dagon. And then the next day they get up and Dagon is off of his his stoop or whatever that he was pedestal that he was he was on. And then they put him back up and they go, okay, no problem. And then they come back the next day and then Dagon has literally broken his hands and his statue in general. The same thing, he's been pushed over a second time. And the Philistines attribute that to the God of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant being in the temple. And then there was this, tradition's not the right word, superstition about cracks and thresholds with Dagon if I recall correctly, feel, feel free to correct yeah, my story Yeah, absolutely. Here. No, 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 your story is on point. So the primary source of information about the Philistines is actually the Hebrew Bible and a few reliefs that are found at uh, the Temple of Ramses III. So there's Egyptian, Egyptian references and biblical references to the Philistines. And Dagon uh, was one of the deities worshipped in ancient Canaan, Syria, and Mesopotamia. So the Philistines would have definitely worshipped him. Now, the scholars are debating whether they he was a primary deity or a secondary deity. Whatever that, that argument is, it's, it's irrelevant to our conversation. The fact is that the Philistines did worship Dagon, just as other peoples in the area did. Uh, the, the main worship the main deities that were worshipped was Dagon, Baal, Astarte, and Asherah. And the Philistines also, possibly, because of their mention in Egyptian reliefs, probably worshipped Ketesh and Anat. Is the etymology of Dagon is from the Hebrew word dog for fish. And this assumes that Dagon was a fish god or that he was a god of maritime people. Now, since the 90s, scholars have challenged this, and there's, I don't know how hotly this is debated among the scholars, but there's a debate. I've looked up the papers, I didn't read them, but I looked them up and I've read the abstracts for, for this podcast. Some scholars, post-1990s, favor the derivation from Dagon instead of Dagon, which means grain. So he could have been the god of grain, which also makes sense for, their, for the area. Well, so most of the gods in the ancient world were, were, yeah, most of them were worshipped because of their influence or, af no, influence, influence on agriculture. I mean, their whole societies were built on agriculture. There's a few god of wars here and there in Greek and Roman. Yeah. I don't know of any in the Mesopotamian era or Egyptian for gods of war, but a lot of it was agriculture. Yeah. And if you really want to go down the rabbit trail, the super nerds out there, there's a book called The Great Fall of Dagon. It mentions an archaeological site which shows what looks like a fish man in two postures on the relief, one standing up and one lying down, which biblical archaeologists say it's probably an allusion, allusion to the Samuel 5 story that you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago. And then there's another one in the Golan Heights. There is another relief there, archaeological site, where but could be Dagon with its hands cut off. So H.P. Lovecraft isn't just making stuff up. I think he's drawing drawing from some 
old mythos, which is still cool. As they say, nothing new is under the sun. But what do you think? Because Lovecraft is credited with the, not even credited, I mean, he created it, right? The Cthulhu universe. And the Cthulhu universe isn't even super fleshed out. It's kind of just fragments and pieces, which is fun. But Dagon would have been one of the deep ones. He would have been half fish, half god, or half fish, half man in at least this world. Do you, I didn't see this in any of the stuff that I looked up. Did you see anything about what initially sparked his thoughts on on using this as inspiration or haunted him or what have you? Yes. There's a possibility that Cthulhu is a play on words or an allusion to the Chthonic gods in ancient Greece. They were supposed to be associated with the underworld and the dead. And on one of the encyclopedia websites that I looked up, there's 45 of these guys. And then none of them are, none of them are pleasant. Just like each one of the H.P. Lovecraft's monsters in the Cthulhu universe. Forty-five gods of the underworld—that doesn't sound right. I'm looking at it right now. You mean from different cultures? Did I mishear you? No, from Greek, from the Greek culture. That doesn't sound right. So Hades, actually, this is a side quest that I wanted to go on a little earlier when you mentioned Hades and Persephone. Hades is the only god in the Greek pantheon who was faithful to his wife. And he only got to see her half the year. So Hades married Persephone because things happened. And he let Persephone leave the underworld for half the year during spring and summer. And then she had to come back for fall and winter. And Hades is, unless someone has a story that I've forgotten, Hades is the, the only faithful god, which is, I, which is interesting. Death is the only faithful god in the Greek pantheon, who never cheated on his wife, ever. Yeah. Well, the, the site I'm, I looked up, yeah, the site I looked up on, which is like an encyclopedia of Greek mythology, it lists 45 gods, or some of them are demons, I suppose. So there's some of them are monsters, some of them are spirits, but... Okay, so they're not gods. They're called they gods. They could be demigods, they could be arch demons or devils but they're not gods necessarily the classifications fair fair no like the encyclopedia in the heading classifies them all as gods but when you go into each subheading and they're described some of them are demons some of them are arch demons some of them are spirits yeah okay Uh, so that makes uh, more sense that's fine the spirit realm and this is a side quest but also like relevant to meta ethics that run the natural world the spirit realm lives in a hierarchical structure and there's no way around that. That's, that's, well, I don't, I don't really have an additional point here, I guess, um, outside of literally yep. ruining the rest of the podcast to go down my ramblings of the spirit realm. So I'll just, I'll just leave that at that. The spirit realm runs on hierarchy. Fair. What did you think about this compared to some of the other stuff we've read so far? I have a hard time comparing because it was, they were all very different. One was fantasy, one was, you know, 1990s horror. It's a pastiche to 30s hard-boiled detective novels. Um, Out of all the Lovecraft that I read, this would make the top three. I like this one. What do you like about it? Is that a good enough answer? What? I like... What stands out to you about this story from Lovecraft versus some of his other works? I like the setting. And by setting, I mean that this is a last will and testament 
of somebody. So he intends somebody to find this, right? And as he jumps out of the window, this is a warning, if you will, or maybe just, you know, an unburdening of everything he's feeling and thinking. Either way, this this note is going to stay on that table. He's going to crane himself out of the window. And one of the things that I, one of my three thoughts, I'm going to shove it in here, that I thought was interesting, just thinking about the story and the world, somebody's going to find this. And that somebody will have one of two reactions. Either they're going to just dismiss this as the ramblings of a lunatic, or it's going to spark an interest to go find this place. And me, you know, look at this monolith. So that's what I liked about it. Like what my imagination created the story behind the story. And I, I enjoy that. Yeah. So one of the things that I really liked about this, well, Lovecraft in general, but this story in particular is, and I'm going to contrast this with a study in Emerald. This left me with a lot more questions in a shorter amount of time where I would enjoy a fuller novella of it because there's just a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of alluding to things that happen in the world, the world itself, and what's going on with the character and the the state of the state of unrest that he's found himself in. So I certainly like this better than a study in Emerald. And I separate the first piece that we read, which was Sanderson, as its own item because it's like a sliver of a fuller cosmere, as he calls it. So of the four that we've read so far I would say that this is the my top one, and my second one would be the Omni's Last Case, because I really like the imagination there, and then my third would be A Study in Emerald so far, and that's just because I was, it, 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 the rating is entirely based on the fact that I was hoping for more Lovecraft in it, and right. that was my expectation. This is not an objective stance, this is just my perception going in expecting one thing getting another and the other thing that i got wasn't bad it just wasn't what i wanted you ever have that with a meal where you go in and you go oh man i really want some pizza you go back to new york and you have a slice and you go this was not good and then you look up and you go oh well it's because i went to sparrows every time i go to sparrows that's a that's what yeah yeah so you know i totally jokes aside i totally get it and gun to my head if i was to rate the the stuff that we read I would rate Sanderson as one, this is two, and these last cases three, and Gaiman as four. And again, those are very arbitrary. They're not necessarily like a value statement of the books, but Sanderson won because I really like the way Sanderson writes. I'm very, very happy that you introduced me to him. So, and I like the story. So that he's number one just because I his style stands out to me above a lot of other writers that I read. I'm currently reading. I feel like I'm influencing you here, but I'm all right with that. And, and that might be it. And I'm I'm okay with that too. Words but yeah, but for mouth. me, they're all so different. Even though some of the, the genres cross, right? They all stand out on their own. Yeah. Right? Well, that's part of the At reason we the, picked them. It's The rating yeah. is literally just your feel on which books you liked more than the others. Because you have opinions and thoughts on why you liked one over another. This isn't an objective rating system that... We're no, not at all. Espousing to the to the greater workings of the internet. What are we reading next time? Even, 
Next time, we are reading The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, which is not a short story at all, but a poem, and so yeah. that'll be fun. Poetry. So we read poetry here. We actually were having a discussion recently about, like, well, what texts, what, what literature do we not read? And we don't necessarily have a big list, but we were like, oh, we should probably think about that. So we'll keep you posted on when we decide if there's things we don't read. Or if you put something in the comments, and then we go, yeah, we're not going to read that. Anyway, next week, Edgar Allan Poe the raven and i had a thought actually yesterday that what i want to do is i want to read name of the wind at some point and then i want to read what name of the wind was has taken large chunks from which is ursula k Le Guin, okay. which i'd forgotten about the earth sea series with ged and it's super different writing as well she was a prominent female fantasy author and Okay. I had the thought yesterday, so hold us hold us to it. At some point, I'd like to read Ursula K. Le Guin with Slava here on SideQuest. SideQuest over. Take us Side home. Quest. All right, good people. Thank you for tuning in this week. And come back next week when we'll be covering Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Be sure to like, subscribe, share with your friends. Let us know how you did or did not like the podcast. And as always, live dangerously. I say as always because I say that all the time, not because we've said it recently, but I do think people should live dangerously. All the time. Goodbye, good people. Bye.